What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Predictions? We can't make any. Eight months ahead for the Fed Fund's futures. It's like the preseason college football poll. The Federal Reserve's hotly anticipated summer camp in Jackson Hole has come and gone. The whole way that they do their business is perverse. And the outlook remains hazy. That we're navigating by the stars in cloudy skies and looking backward. Chair Jay Powell's message. Mohamed El Arian of Allianz joins us. First, what Powell did, and it actually came as good news to the markets, is he didn't say anything new. And that elusive inflation target way out on the horizon. The key issue is, is 2% the right target? And cheaper drugs for seniors. The White House wants to renegotiate prices. Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb on what that means for Big Pharma. There are places where there's a lot of spending in the Medicare program where we don't have as much competition as we should from lower cost alternatives. It's Monday, August 28th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by, Joe, in three, two, one. Here's Mike. Here. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. Trying to think of, I mean, I'm with Clark Kent. You're, you're really not Jimmy Olsen, I, I can't say. But I'm, we're live from the NASDAQ. I'm Joe Kernan. Santoli's I didn't know here. those were the only two choices. No, but okay. they're not. Yeah. I, but I got to be Perry, what's his face? Uh, the geezer, right? Uh, but you, you're straight from the phone booth. Um, what do the you do? The last one left. What do you do now? You go, there's other places, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in Times Square, just hell, just do it right in the uh, you can stage right in mannered. You are. You are, Clark. It's, it's great to have you guys uh, here. Becky and Andrew are off today. They'll be back uh, soon. It's, it's not really the dog days of August, but it's late August. That kind of uh, explains things. But a kind of a, I mean, this week after uh, Jackson Hole, now I'm worried again. Um, but after uh, Jackson Hole, some of these numbers and the number on Friday will be, yeah. will be a big deal. And the market is up on Friday. But in general, it's well, you, wobbly. Uh, but wobbly. I mean, we're 4% off the highs. It hasn't really been that nasty uh, if you look at, you know, point to point. Um, you know, yields uh, up, but this felt like it kind of priced in whatever Powell had to say right. on, uh, on Friday, which is we don't really know if or when we're going again in terms of interest rates, but that's the point in the cycle where you have to just wait and see right. how the numbers come through. Nobody wants to be Jimmy Olsen. He was an earnest, I guess, because, huh? He's, I, I guess I understand it, but everybody wants to be, right? You could be man. Bruce Wayne. That's a good one. That's a little dark, but okay, yeah. And I'm the Joker. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We were already talking about him today. Yeah. We're, we're watching Treasury yields after uh, Joe Kernan, Joe, after Fed Chair Jay Powell, uh, Powell's comments. Uh, Jackson Hole on Friday said inflation remains too high and the central bank is ready to continue hiking rates to tame persistently uh, high prices. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably down toward our objective. I think it takes one or two reports to, to, uh, to change that narrative, don't you think? Cool ones? 
one or two better than expected. Inflation cool, cooler reinforcing report. the disinflation theme. Yeah. Crappy economy reports. Yeah, I mean, even after what he said Friday, the market is saying another 25 basis point hike this year is like a coin flip. You know, so maybe. But honestly, also, I think the big picture is how much is it going to matter? Like we're up by 525 basis points in less than a year and a half. And the economy's doing what it's doing. It seems like it's hanging in there pretty well. And so is 25 basis points maybe over the next few months going to be the thing that really uh, changes the picture or not? I think the question is what long-term yields do and why they're doing it. And when they cut. I think the betting game now is, is there going to be that cut next June where you saw that percentage who expect to cut next June actually declined a little bit. So the long-term expectations for rates creeped up a little bit, which was surprising why the market went up and long-term yields also went up. I've had this back and forth with Leesman for a while. I don't necessarily think the stock market looks at those numbers and says that's the reason we're going to be strong because we're going to be cutting rates in eight months or something like that. Plus, eight months ahead for the Fed Funds futures. It's like the preseason college football poll. It's interesting. It's all we have to work with right now. But the main fascinating debate is how are the results actually going to be different from what we think right now? Right. Because you right. know it's not going to stay that way. Well, well, given multiples, one of two things has to happen. Either the Fed has to start cutting rates or earnings have to outperform. Because based on current multiples, you know, 18.6 versus a 10-year average of 15 and change, one of those two well, things Well, the 10-year average is above 15 and change, I think. But, yeah. um, no, I, I mean, look, the, the math is, is not really functioning in real time in terms of what... Why would there be a cut if the Fed doesn't engineer a recession or a recession if it doesn't even a just an average landing why would they cut i don't and the other thing that scares me is i'm so used to the consensus being wrong if it was just another 25 basis points i mean we used to get we had three straight 75 basis points so that's nothing that wouldn't do i'm worried that it could be persistent i'm worried of two about two things it would be really a persistent Inflation with oil going back up, and but China, you know, China might actually end up pulling the other way, helping yeah. uh, with this there. But uh, thinking that the next move is a cut instead of that six percent or seven percent or things that historically yields, you know that you remember mortgages and everything. I mean, historically we've been at higher levels than four and four and a quarter percent. Are we missing that? that no, and you make the point that during the dot-com bubble, we were at, what, 7% right. in terms and, of interest rates? And things were fine yeah. in terms of valuations. And yeah, it's until a matter of how were. you got there. Right. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Right. I mean, you it's know, the rate of change. You, you kind of, exactly. And it's like where you are now relative to the past few years. Right. I don't know. what The, the banking sector's had enough problems with this, you know, as you say, the rate of change. Because these aren't historically high rates. They ought to be able to handle this. But in answer to the question of why would they cut if they don't engineer yeah. a recession, yeah. they've laid out the rationale for that, which is as inflation comes down, by definition, a five, five and a quarter percent Fed funds rate becomes more restrictive. Maybe they don't have to be. They still believe the neutral rate is much lower than five. Well, that's, yeah. that's but, the, but they that's don't the know where it is. It's nice to know that if they could, they'd like economic activity to be maximized because just the whole way that they do their business is perverse right and, and i love the, the one of the last lines where he said we're navigating in cloudy by the stars in cloudy skies and looking backwards by right. the way because all the data is backward looking so you I could get inflation down without ruining the economy that, that which they've done so far right. that, that's a win that's a win and i hope in the back of their mind they're not disappointed that they haven't you know yeah made the economy weaker i don't think they are no. you don't think so they're, they're all, we're all on the same 
team, aren't we? That's right. We're strong. They'll, they'll, I think they'll, they'll take the credit if we, get the, if we get inflation lower. Shares of China Evergrande Group began trading in Hong Kong overnight for the first time since March of 2022. It wasn't trading for 17 months. The world's most indebted property developer plunged as much as 87% when it reopened after reporting a loss of $5.4 billion for the first half of the year. Evergrande's U.S. assets are protected under Chapter 15 bankruptcy law as it works on a restructuring deal overseas. And sticking with the Chinese markets, the country's Ministry of Finance is cutting the duty it levies on all stock trades by half in an effort to, uh, in their words, invigorate capital markets. This is the first time Beijing has taken this type of action since 2008. China's uh, Securities Commission, I didn't even know they had one, they don't really act like it, uh, also says it's going to slow the pace of IPOs in an effort to keep investors' cash in broader markets as opposed to piling into new offerings. And the front page piece on China, it, 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 it kind of sums up all the discussions we've had for the past couple of weeks that I've sort of been grappling with, and that is that there's no doubt that she has pulled back on, on all the, the pro-market, pro-capitalism tendencies for some type of ideological reasons, which is going to, you know, when you're going to affect a billion and a half people and they're making 12 grand a year GDP, that they're not ready to take the foot off the, the gas. So the, the journal kind of sums it up, but I still don't really understand how he thinks you make China a dominant, um, you know, world power when it's all economy-based. It's not ideology-based. The CCP can't in and of itself make you, unless you do it militarily, which is scary. Autocracy is not good for the economy, yeah. turns out. But he, he decided, and it, yeah. it, it sums it up here, that also unlikely are any major market-oriented changes or a reversal of the multi-year shift towards more centralized control, which we're having in this country a little bit. Uh, too, but maybe, well, I, I don't know. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about China. It's a deep suspicion of consumer spending-led growth. And it, it seems as if that's one element Why? of it. Because they believe it's this decadent Western mode of, of economic growth. And it right. also maybe encourages a little more uh, income inequality. They, they're, they're just, I think, hooked on the export-led. Yeah, great. It's all, it, just when you're talking to me, I'm like, my, no, no, I, I, I know it's true, but... Yeah, our people have a, a GDP of 12000 a year. That's enough. Let, let them eat cake. They should be happy with, with what they have. And cons- if they had more and were spending it on things, that well, would the be interesting bad. Thing is they- I'm, sure he's, I'm sure she's depriving himself and all of his, uh, all of his buddies in the CCP are depriving themselves of all the good things Well, they're happy to let people speculate on housing and borrow a lot of money and well, they were. They real were. estate Not and fixed investment. It's all, about, but, it's all about quality, yeah. quality growth now. And the question is, what is quality growth? I mean, there is no growth anywhere. It's not in the capital markets, not in the consumer economy. It's not in capital investment. Part of why Raimondo's there is to try to get Americans to invest in China because that's what they want. Every part of the economy is slowing. The economic relationship between the United States and China is one of the most significant in the world. We share over $700 billion of trade and I concur with you that it is profoundly... Today, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is meeting with officials and business leaders in China for the week. Eunice Yoon joins us now with more. Hey, Eunice. Hey, Joe. Well, I'm outside the ambassador's residence where the ambassador is hosting a reception 
for the Commerce Secretary, as well as uh, what's becoming a who's who of the American business community here. Um, her main message, of course, is that the U.S. and China can still have a strong trading relationship despite the tensions and despite her department's export controls. Now, earlier today, on the first of uh, three days of meetings here in China, she met with the Chinese Commerce Minister. Uh, she told the minister that the $700 billion of trade and stable ties are, quote, profoundly important. Uh, before arriving to China, she told reporters that uh, what she described as narrow and targeted U.S. export controls impact only 1% of trade, and that areas like Chinese tourism uh, could generate $30 billion uh, for the U.S. economy and potentially 50,000 U.S. jobs if tourism returns to its pre-pandemic levels. Now, to highlight the broader ties, the secretary today attended a event that um, was highlighting the uh, small and medium-sized uh, U.S. companies that are selling into China, just to talk about how it's not only the big companies that are benefiting. Uh, the Chinese commerce minister said that his country is ready to work, he said, to foster a more favorable policy environment. Uh, yet despite the pleasantries, it doesn't appear as though the two sides are really moving towards addressing some of the core policies that have been irritating the other side. Uh, for example, the Chinese state press has been pointing out that China's key concern is the U.S. restrictions on American investment into advanced Chinese IT. And Raimondo directly addressed this issue to the Commerce Minister at her meeting this morning, saying, in matters of national security, there is no room to compromise or negotiate. Joe? Okay, Eunice, uh, thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Fed Chairman Jay Powell's warning that the central bank could keep hiking interest rates is driving the markets on this last week of August. Mohammed El Arian on everything, rates, bond yields, prices being higher for longer. It's all about the supply side. We've come from a world when it was all about the demand side. There was insufficient demand in the system. So what do you do? QE, zero rates, fiscal expansion. We're now in a world where it's about the supply side, and unfortunately, not enough policy tools are being used. That's right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Three, two, sorry, push on Joe. Up on him, cue, music. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from uh, the NASDAQ market site in Times Square, which, as you know, is in Gotham, Gotham uh, City. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Mike Santoli and 
Robert Frank, it says here, uh, I know, insert. Mild-mannered reporter. Mild-mannered Clark Kent look-alike uh, reporter. Yeah. It's, oh, that's Metropolis. Gotham is. is that's Batman. his place. He's yeah. ba- he's I prefer Bruce Batman, don't you? Because I don't buy into the whole, uh, you know, he does. Super Batman powers. does everything just with. His brain. Practical his effects. Brain. As it actually, yeah, yeah. It, you know, he doesn't have like x-ray vision. Or, or, he's got a much better car. And a cooler car. He needs a car because he can't fly. Obviously, it's two and two, two and two with the jackets. Elarians here. You're gonna keep on the. Well, you have to. You got a real job. I'll take it off at half past. That's a good idea. Go half and half. Well, you need no introduction, uh, Muhammad Elarian. Uh, both Becky and Andrew are off today. I think Becky's back tomorrow, I believe. So you can weigh in. You can actually because it's like your pseudo guest hosting. So you can weigh in. You can ask questions. You can uh, grill guests. You can do whatever you want. Not what? even pseudo. No, not even pseudo. It's just straight guest Kind hosting. of pseudo, because we don't do it anymore. I'm kind of guest hosting. So he's you're kind of the guest, guest hosting. So he's, I don't know what, you're, uh, yeah, you're kind of a pseudo, pseudo quasi. USA. Joe, Joe, I'm here to make you look good. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, have some heavy lifting, <laughs> heavy lifting there, uh, Muhammad. Let's get to it uh, with Muhammad uh, to talk about the markets. Big week of economic data coming up and the feeling coming out of Fed Chair Jay Powell's Jackson Hole speech, Muhammad. And, uh, First of all, welcome and good to see you. Um, what's your, your main takeaway? He, you know, a year after uh, Powell was brief and relatively blunt and harsh and trying to uh, persuade the markets that a lot more tightening was to come, he seemed not really to want to make explicit news. He kind of reca- recapitulated the current situation. Inflation's down a lot, but not enough. Um, we may hike more, but we, we're going to be data dependent. Um, not talking about cuts just yet. So where does that leave us? So, so first, what Powell did, and it actually came as good news to the markets, is he didn't say anything new. He maintained maximum policy optionality. And the market liked that because there was some concern that he may go and start talking about this R-star, longer-term issues, which actually are uncertain for markets. So the good news... R-star, for the mar- which is this theoretical neutral rate of interest, right? Correct. What's really interesting is what he... The two things he did say about the longer term... One is, and we have played it on the air, inflation, the target is and will remain 2%, very controversial. And second, that we are operating in under the stars, but it's a cloudy sky. Right? These two things are really meaningful because away from him, and unfortunately there's, there's enough coverage, there was a lot of discussion about how the global economy is changing, how supply side issues are becoming more important, and what does that mean for monetary policy? So the good news for the markets is they heard what they want to hear, which is nothing new. But the bigger news is that there are real puzzling, outstanding issues out there. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can really describe those in in several ways. We have a full employment economy in the U.S. where inflation has been coming down, not to target, but it's been coming down. Um, It seems late in the cycle based on a lot of metrics, and yet we're kind of reaccelerating in terms of GDP growth right now. Um, longer-term Treasury yields going up, but it's not because inflation expectations are spiking. So um, I guess it would make sense for a, a central banker to say, I want to preserve as much flexibility as possible. Yeah, totally. And, and, and look at the marketplace. Look what we're pricing. Pause, hike, pause, cut. I've never seen that sequence before. Um, it shows you that we are uncertain. We think inflation ha- w- will remain low. We think the Fed will have a green light to cut. But that sequence is a really interesting one. The structural changes that are most 
crucial, do you think, going on in the economy right now are what? I mean, there's a lot of talk that, okay, it's going to be a higher for longer world in terms of rates, but what, what, what ultimately is, is crucial? Mike, it's all about the supply side. We've come from a world when it was all about the demand side. There was insufficient demand in the system. So what do you do? QE, zero rates, fiscal expansion. We're now in a world where it's about the supply side, and unfortunately, not enough policy tools are being used. So look at everything we talk about. The rewiring of supply chains, the transition in the economy, the labor market, like you just mentioned, labor becoming more forceful. We have the possibility of more strikes. You saw what happened at American Airlines. You saw what happened at, um, at UPS. So it really is all about the supply side, and we've got to get our head around there. One of, the, one of the lines I found interesting in the speech was he said, look, the only way to get to 2% is to either have below-trend economic growth or to have a softer labor market, probably both. Yet it feels like the stock market in the first half of this year believed that we were going to have this sort of immaculate uh, disinflation and or that the economy was going to strengthen. In fact, it does seem like we're not experienced subpar economic growth right now. They're talking talk, you the Atlanta Fed talking about a 5% plus third quarter. Um, do you think the market's not getting that message about below trend economic growth? So I think the market has changed its, its mind so many times. I mean, if I remember correctly, we went from soft landing to hard landing to no landing to crash landing in March to soft landing. And some people are talking again about no landing. So we've been all over the place. And that's because it is such an uncertain time. I think, Robert, the key issue is, is 2% the right target? That is the key issue. A lot well, he's got to say it is. He's got to say it is. And, and, and there was a lovely line by one of the speakers, uh, Professor Eichengreen, which is that we're going to tiptoe, tiptoe to a higher inflation target. We're not going to announce it. We're just going to end up living with inflation that's above 2%. It's going to prove to be stable. And at some point, you're going to be able to make that transition. If that happens, that's great for the markets. Do you think in an election year he can get away with cutting rates if it's 2.8, 2.9, as long as it has a two-handle? I think it's going to be hard if he continues to say 2% is and remains our inflation target. If he goes a little bit quiet on that, I, th I think that... Do you ultimately it. think they will wait to 2 or do you think it's... Well, I mean, it, you in think the press it's conference be in July, plus? Powell said we'll probably be cutting before we get to 2. Right. Right. I mean, just because of the math of how what's restrictive, what's not. But what we're looking at right now is the possibility that headline inflation will head back up and core inflation may not come down quickly enough. And it all comes down to services and wages. That's, that's where the battle is being fought right now. And housing. Also, I mean, housing is not, is not or is part of core. So, you know, there's a real issue as to whether we've broken the housing market. When you go Prices are going up. Rents are going up. Well, so, that's, so when you go from record low mortgage rates yeah. to levels that we haven't seen for almost 20 years, you destroy both the demand and supply. Right. Right. And that's the irony. Yeah. Is that, is that supply has come down and demand has come down as well. That is the way you destroy a housing market. And we've got to be really careful because the housing market is central to the economy. Yeah. And to most people's wealth. So we're not headed for permanently higher rates that we're not expecting. The, the, the rate of, because we've gone up four or 500 basis points, that get, that's enough. Because it's still, they still seem low to me, Muhammad. Just in terms of the cost of money historically, 
I don't see why people are talking about cuts. I don't know why, it, why we would ever need to cut again. And if we could get to 6%, we could get to 65 we could get the, back to 7 Is that not happening? Is it something structurally different now in the economy that, that makes it different from my entire history of in, in financial markets, the 80s, the 90s, the, the, the 2000s? We're permanently at 4% is high. So you and me feel that we're going back to normal. Yeah. However, there's a whole system that believed normal were interest rates of zero, normal where the Fed would be But we know that's injecting. ridiculous. You and I know that, but it lasted for 10 years. What about years? the Fed's balance sheet? Is that ever, do we, isn't that way too big still? It is way too big. It should come down. You and, you and I are on the same um, wavelength when it comes to time. this, is, is that the, the Fed has distorted markets to a huge extent through artificially low interest rates and expanding its balance sheet way too much. And as, result, as a result, we're headed to 180 debt to GDP. It has enabled the a type of leveraging in debt exactly. that shouldn't have been enabled. Now we've got to somehow grow the economy fast enough to be able to live with that. If not, there's going to be a real question. And this is, you guys talked about China earlier today. That is what China is facing right now. It can no longer maintain high economic growth. So what used to be isolated pocket of leverage and indebtedness are becoming systemic. And that's what we've got to avoid. And that's where we can feel good about ourselves because we're at 75 grand GDP per person. There are still a 13 Correct. in China. Correct. They're hitting a bump in the road and, and getting rid of some of these pro-growth policies at 13,000. How are there people supposed to feel about that? That's going to be the big question. And you see the household sector not responding to government policies. They've tried various types of piecemeal stimulus, and the result of that is that the household sector says, I don't believe it. Similarly, the markets today, we opened up 5% higher, and we ended up just 1% higher. People are saying, you know what, I'm not sure that's going to last. Yeah, when, the Chinese equity index. Yeah. Yeah, when absolutely. did you first guess host on Squawkbox? How many years oh, ago? Oh, decades ago. How many times have you worn a jacket when you guest hosted? I normally do half and half. Yeah, because there's been many, many times where you haven't worn a jacket. Correct. I and mean, you've got a blue shirt on, which is fine, so it's not going to you know, be, be too... See, if you, if you were to take I off... I the, can't. Blinding. He's got blue. He's blinding. So blue is the answer? I should... Blue, if you're not going to wear a jacket. Yeah. <clears throat> Non-white is, is probably better because it just it gets too hot. Well, you're hot. <laughs> you are. You can, I, I always say that when you come on. Man, he is too hot. Coming up on Squawk Pod are cheaper prescriptions to come. One of the Biden administration's most sweeping reforms is imminent. Medicare negotiating individual drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina, explains the complications still ahead. The savings that are hoped for probably aren't going to be fully realized. And a lot of investment is going to shift into non-Medicare markets or markets that don't uh, aren't in the crosshairs of this new law. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today with Joe Kernan, Michael Santoli, and Robert Frank. Joined by Allianz Chief Economic Advisor, Mohamed El Arian. Joe kicks things off. This week, uh, the Biden administration is expected to release a list of 10 
uh, drugs for which Medicare will negotiate prices. Uh, the effort stems from the Inflation Reduction Act. It's the first time the government will be able to bargain for Medicare drugs. Though the effort is facing legal challenges from the pharmaceutical industry. Joining us now, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. He also serves on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina and is a CNBC contributor. And, and if you were in high school, Scott, and, and you were on a debate team, could you do either side of, of, of this? Could you argue for Medicare negotiating prices from, from the side of the government or, or could you do it also from the pharmaceutical side? You're on the board of Pfizer. I can do either side, I think. Is this, is this going to be a good thing for society uh, as a whole? Well, look, I, I certainly can't argue for the structure that they created here to try to get some savings in the Medicare program. There are some good aspects to this law. It's going to cap out-of-pocket spending by consumers, by Medicare beneficiaries at $2,000 right now. It's at $3,100, the out-of-pocket spending. It also gets rid of the 5% copay, the cost-sharing on catastrophic um, spending inside the Medicare Part D program. So consumers will start to see savings, particularly consumers who use high-cost drugs. Those kick in starting in 2025. But in terms of the structure that they created to try to implement these price controls, really what Congress wanted to do was create an earlier loss of exclusivity on these drugs. But they couldn't outright strip the patent terms away from the drug companies. So they came up with this very convoluted price negotiation scheme that's going to lead to a lot of unintended consequences. Just to give you one example, the price negotiations, or really the price regulation, kicks in after nine years on the market for a small molecule drug, but 13 years for a biological, for a large molecule drug. So you're already seeing a lot of investment shift away from small molecule drugs into large molecule drugs in VC syndicates and other early kinds of investment. That's ultimately going to drive up costs because those large molecule drugs, the biologics, are harder to genericize. They cost more to deliver. And there's also certain diseases that you just can't reach with a large molecule. If you want to hit something intracellular, you want to hit a, a pocket on a, a protein, you really need a small molecule. So as investment comes out of small molecules, that's going to have a deleterious public health outcome. I'm putting you on the, uh, the opposed side in, in my debate, and that was, really, that was pretty effective. So I'm shocked. I'm shocked. So there's going to be some unintended consequences to, to the government uh, being able to do this. Yeah, look, yeah. They, they should have just uh, been honest about what they were trying to do, which was really create a, an earlier loss of exclusivity on these drugs. That's effectively what they tried to achieve um, through this scheme. But the scheme's very convoluted. And, and there's going to be other um, unintended consequences here as, as this thing rolls out. And that's the shame of it. You know, you're going to see certain things not get developed, certain investment not get made because of these really um, odd incongruities they created between the large and small molecules in particular. I think that's going to be the biggest one. It also substantially reduces generic incentives, so incentives for generic manufacturers to get into the market. Because if you price regulate a drug and you take out the margin on the drug, generic manufacturers are going to have less incentive to try to bust patents to get that 180 days of exclusivity that they're entitled to under Hatch-Waxman. So you're going to see less competition, less aggressive behavior by the generic manufacturers, and they're going to be hurting as well. Um, they're going to lose some of the margin that they used to, used to recognize on the higher-cost drugs when they would bust pharmaceutical patents. So what we hear from the president is that part of the IRA, look, this is why we're going to hold inflation down. We're going to be able to negotiate on, on prescription drugs. But it gets complicated, Scott, and the worst thing is that it, done right, prescription drugs are the, the, the best bargain in town compared to hospital stays or chronic illnesses or even, you know, uh, infusion, outpatient, it, it's the cheapest way to do it. And if you stifle innovation 
and it costs a lot of money to develop these, and most of them fail anyway. And we say that again and again, and I'm on a soapbox. I got one right here because my chair's high. But I get on this soapbox that we, we can, we're messing with the, the goose that lays golden eggs in, in many cases. It's, if it, yeah, look, it could, it could, this is going to, go ahead. This is going to take out $286 million over 10 years from the sector. So there's going to be less money overall to go back into investment. But I think the biggest impact is probably going to be how the investment gets allocated, how companies try to work around some of the provisions in this law. So, for example, they could look to launch first in Europe and try to build bigger data packages over there so that when they come back to the U.S., given that they're only going to have nine years of effective exclusivity, they can get a faster ramp in the U.S. market. So that's one thing you're likely to see. You're also likely to see some companies think about launching in indications that are non-Medicare indications. So if you have a drug, for example, that could treat diabetes and weight loss, you might launch first in weight loss or maybe launch only in weight loss so you stay out of the Medicare market. So I think the public health consequences of how companies think about where they allocate the investment now, that's what I'm worried about. There is going to be less money overall, but I think what you're going to see is a lot of compensatory behavior. So the savings that are hoped for probably aren't going to be fully realized. And a lot of investment is going to shift into non-Medicare markets or markets that don't uh, aren't in the crosshairs of this new law. And, and capital is fluid, as you know. I mean, the big companies have a harder time shifting their capital around. Certainly, venture capitalists have an easier time because they're making investment decisions right now and they can just change that behavior. Scott, good morning. Is it an inherent trade-off that we simply cannot make consistent, which is innovation versus lower cost? Or can you think of a better way to meet both objectives? Yeah, look, I think that there are ways to bring more competition into these markets still. There are still pockets of the market where there's not competition. So Medicare Part B, for example, is a price taker. It's not a competitively bid system like Part D. I think they should open up Medicare Part B to competitive bidding. We also don't see as much competition from biosim- biosimilars as we should be seeing. I think there are ways to for FDA to implement regulatory reforms that would allow biosimilars to be uh, it fully interchangeable with the branded alternatives so they can be substitutable at the point of pharmacy, like small molecule drugs are. So when you get a small molecule drug that's generic, if you go to the pharmacy and ask for Lipitor, you're probably getting a Torvastatin, a generic formulation. You're not getting the branded formulation of that drug. That doesn't exist with biosimilar drugs, but I think there are some biosimilars that could be fully interchangeable, like insulin. And that would also drive down costs and create more competition. So there are places where there's a lot of spending in the Medicare program where we don't have as much competition as we should from lower-cost alternatives. And what's stopping that from happening? It seems so obvious. You both increase competition, you increase the incentive for innovation, but you also control costs. What's, what's stopping that from happening? Well, some regulatory skittishness. I think historically companies were against it, particularly the Medicare Part B bidding scheme, moving Medicare Part B drugs to a competitively bid system because manufacturers did do better under administrative pricing. Um, now they won't, and so maybe they'll be open to it and won't fight it. But there are, I think these things are more um, possible now because the alternative, which is the price control regime that we're seeing implemented this week, uh, is far worse from a, you know, an economic standpoint, just direct impact, but also creating very perverse incentives in the market. The other thing I would say is that programs like 340B and ASP plus 6%, again, programs that Congress implemented to try to address a problem but did it very indirectly, they're doing through this law, also incentivize higher cost prescribing behavior. So you're actually paying institutions or doctors to prescribe the highest cost drugs because they're making a spread on, on that spending. I think removing some of those incentives as well will allow physicians to have more incentives to seek out the lowest cost drug. Right now they're paid to prescribe higher cost drugs in many instances. And that's also having a lot of bad incentives in the Medicare program. 
I'd open up the can of worms of another COVID vaccine for the new, for the new strain, but I, I don't, we need like an hour to, go, to talk about. Is, would people rush to get those at this point, do you think? I, I'm sort of a vaccine out. I, I feel like I might take my chances with the immunity I already have. Am I going to get another booster, Scott? My booster du jour? Look, I think there are some people who are going to make a choice to get those vaccines because they're at higher risk than other individuals. It's going to be up to individuals Same to make that assessment. That's but the way we should have done it the first time. Maybe, that, maybe that's how we should have done it the first time, in hindsight. Right? We should have. This, these shouldn't have been mandated. And, and you and I talked about that, and we, I think right. we were both against the, uh, the employer mandate. Or the military going door to door. All right, uh, Scott uh, Gottlieb, thank you. We will... Uh, Thanks a lot. Good, good, good to have you back talking about something other than COVID, but maybe next time. Thank you. Thank uh, you for having me. Good to have you on. Make sure. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank let's, you. Let's do it again sometime. Not the most. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, sometimes with cameos from the rest of our CNBC family. Like today, our thanks to Mike Santoli and Robert Frank. To catch Joe, Becky, and Andrew live for three hours, tune in weekday mornings to CNBC at 6 Eastern. And for the highlights of our TV show, follow Squawk Pod, this podcast, wherever you're listening now. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.